Episode 114. In this episode, Neil and Dario say hello to 2021 and hello to season 13. The main focus of the episode is concert films. They mainly get into Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense with a little bit of time to cover Spike Lee's American Utopia. This episode also marks the first official release partnership with Mubi. Neil and Dario chat a little bit about Richard Fleischer's 1973 The Don Is Dead, recently released on Masters of Cinema Blu-ray. And there's a very special, wonderful mystery guest. A clue to who that is, is in the vicinity of this introduction. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and we are back with season 13. And of course, we are back with Dr. Neil Fox. Neil, how good does it feel to be uh, back on the show? Wonderful. Back doing this wonderfully stable and consistent part of uh, of our lives uh, in a very tumultuous time. Um, yeah, no, it's really nice to be back. And uh, yeah, didn't have much of a break this time, but feels good. Um, lots to be lots to be excited about lots of good episodes coming up um yeah excited to get back into it and have that have that regularity of contact and sort of chat i think it's going to be really nice in what's going to be a busy few months yeah it's uh, an interesting one because obviously we had a very definite start to last season with the uh, the bogdanovich episode and then the episode we were talking about film education and stuff there was a sort of sense of yeah here's the definite start and it's kind of the same because we've been talking about this episode for a little while and it chimes with other projects that you've got going on doesn't it Neil so why don't you just give us a quick overview of what's to come so yeah so today we're going to be talking about well concert films particularly Stop Making Sense and American Utopia Jonathan and Demi and Spike Lee's films for Talking Heads and David Byrne respectively and yeah how how my book is going which is uh, a book on music documentaries and concert films for BFI Bloomsbury, which I'm currently in the first third of writing, I'll say. Um, and yeah, just thought it'd be a nice way to to kind of kick off something that don't have to do too much research for, hopefully. Hopefully it's all in my head. <laughs> it shall be lodged there, hopefully. Um, and also, yeah, just uh, because you'd seen um, American Utopia after I sort of talked about it at the end of uh, last year, on the, sort of the end of your episode, and I think you then watched Stop Making Sense around the same time as well so thought while it's all fresh to uh to kind of talk about it and they are you know i think america utopia really has sort of landed in a in a really kind of significant way in the the music documentary and concert film landscape which is very cluttered landscape at the moment so for something like that to stand out kind of means that it's it's obviously doing something something very particular and it's doing something particular on its own i think but also very much it very much recalls not making sense um and we'll talk a bit about that as we as we go through Indeed, we we will, and uh, yeah, other other things to to kind of talk about just before we get into that is 
the the patreon continues so thank you to those guys who are subscribing to our membership page our next newsletter is uh, going to be coming out very soon and i think what we're we're also going to do is we've decided to kind of slightly restructure the the podcast in terms of the podcast will carry on as normal but our bonus episodes will follow on now or some of them will anyway. Every time we do a main episode, we will do a follow-on episode in the bonus, which will be sort of 15, 20, 25 minutes extra, depending on how much time we've got and how much more we've got to say. So it's hopefully going to give the bonus a little bit more of a a, um, a kind of coherent connection to the main show. But then obviously sort of it offers up that space to be able to, to, to do other things as well. And yeah, and we're also looking at new tiers for the, the Patreon. I'm trying to figure out how to make that work in a way that works for us and what the levels are going to be but there may be some other merch opportunities that are connected to to that um those of you who are already patrons we're looking at already you won't have to sign up for anything extra especially if you've been contributing for a long time you're going to get a little uh, merch bonus for yourselves but um yeah the there is going to be some exciting kind of elements that we're going to be offering alongside what you already get on the um, for the Patreon membership, little extras, uh, videos, connections, uh, messages from us, and, and maybe even for the top tier, we're, we're looking at having guest editors on if they're interested in doing that. So, interesting times moving forward. Again, just to reiterate, Neil, we we you know it's all about trying to you know make the podcast as good as it can be. I mean, we we reckon we've got an absolutely amazing audience, but we're not going to be. Mark Maron in terms of audience figures that's for sure so it's just that little bit of help that that helps um, pay for things that that need to be paid for yeah and it's been nice obviously in the last month or so we've had yeah quite a few new Patreon members which is really fantastic and again when when you have those kind of sign-ups it reminds you obviously yeah like you say a very loyal audience and an interested audience but also you know to to keep us thinking about what we can do for those listeners that um that kind of makes it meaningful and worthwhile because as, as people say you know as they say at the end of a flight we know you had a choice <laughs> and you chose to you chose to give us your money so kind of making sure that that's <laughs> yes. that's kind of honored and respected is something that we, we, is really important to us and yeah hopefully there will be some interesting things in there on the monthly on the different tiers that that, that people will find interesting and, and sign up for fantastic so just before we start talking specifically about Concert films and stop making sense in American Utopia. You wanted to just mention another Masters of Cinema release, is it this time that you've been sent? It is. It's uh, Richard Fleischer's The Don is Dead, which is a film I hadn't heard of. And uh, I saw that it had Robert Forster and Anthony Quinn. Uh, and I, you know, I like Richard Fleischer. Um, he made some good, tough movies. And um, yeah, this this is a really tough movie. It's about, it's about the mafia and it's kind of a, a gang turf war. And uh, Robert Forster plays a young young man whose uh, his father dies, um, and he's sort of he's thwarted from taking over the uh, that part of the family because he's too young, and uh, that is a nice bit of sort of tension that kicks off the movie. And then he he falls in love with a woman who's not Italian or Italian American. Anthony Quinn uh, is like the big boss, um, and he also falls in love with this woman. And when Robert Forster finds out, he is really vile, really violently assaults um, the girlfriend he and uh, his ex girlfriend, and um, starts this huge, huge kind of uh, family war. And it's incredibly lean, incredibly yeah, incredibly violent for its time in nineteen seventy three, 
and um and frederick forrest is who's always brilliant um you sort of know him sort of later 70s movies like apocalypse now and things like that he he plays this really smart and incisive um sort of mafia don who sort of rises through the ranks in the midst of this this sort of turf warfare between anthony quinn and robert forster and yeah it's it's just one of those really thrilling movies that in part you can see would have there are obviously parts where it's it's kind of dated particularly in terms of the representations of violence and uh some of the kind of the racial politics in it as well but but it's just a kind of example of the kinds of movies that got made in the 70s that just have been forgotten you know um and and just the sheer wealth of material that was kind of around there and Fleischer was obviously not a new Hollywood director not really a kind of old Hollywood stalwart you know one of those kind of middle ground filmmakers making interesting work and uh that's uh it looks really really good and just a really kind of tough lean pulp movie if you're in the mood for something that's just really gonna sort of get under your skin and, and sort of not give a six it's it's well worth it so I think that's out now as well um i really enjoyed that that was one of the first things i saw this year and i was like this is this is a good movie yeah interesting because on my um my diary of watches that i've been doing on the blog if anybody's been uh, reading some of that i watched uh, the long goodbye again after, after a long time not having had seen it and this strikes me just from your description as something quite similar because I was watching the longer by and think, wow, wow this is going to pl- this won't play in 2021 in the same way as it did in 1970s because it's like, yeah, um, <laughs> political correctness was not really a thing, I don't think, in 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 this period. And interesting looking at Fleischer's career, as you said, somebody who's made some really interesting work, you know, Che and Torah, 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 and this kind. Of, then going back to Twenty Thousand Leads Under the Sea, there's some sort of you know, not 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 huge blockbuster type Hollywood stuff, but you yeah, know, yeah, studio movies, high really. end B movies with um, studios, yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of in that that space, isn't it? And then some really, I mean, Soylent Green's good fun, isn't it? You know, but then Mandingo and Ashanti is probably the less said the better. But then the jazz singer. So you know, just kind of, and then <laughs> sort of ends his career with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, and. Uh, Conan the Destroyer, so towards the end of his career. So just a yeah, fascinating director. So yeah, probably one worth 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 checking out that that the Don is dead. For me anyway. No, absolutely. I don't th- yeah, I mean it's the same year as the Longer by I think seventy three. Yeah. You know, which is a, a hell of a year for movies anyway. Mean Streets and Don't Look Now as well. All those two that kind of pop up in, in seventy three. And it's interesting sort of saying about not politically correct because it's it really is obviously a kind of pulp script, yep. you know, and pulp is famously not politically correct um you know and it's really got that kind of grime on it um it's a really really tough and sometimes nasty film um but yeah and interesting sort of looking at it around sort of the, sort of the mandingo time for Fleischer you know he's, he's kind of pushing pushing what is what, what he what he's been doing for sort of 20 years by that time so yeah well worth well worth checking out and Anthony Quinn's always good fun as a kind of scene-chewing mafia, you know, sort of head of the family. So it's got that kind of nice mix of classic Hollywood, Anthony Quinn and young Hollywood, Robert Forster and um, Frederick Forrest. You know, it's all that kind of clash of Hollywood styles. It works really, really well for the story. So well worth checking out. Awesome. Hi, I got a tape I want to play.
So let's um, let's think about our our main subject then today. We're going to talk obviously about about concert films, about music documentaries, and difficult to know where to start with you. Just looking at your background there, I mean, our, our viewers can't see it, but Neil's sort of Zoom background is not a bookshelf, but just like an immense shelving of uh, vinyl LPs and all sorts of uh, different kinds of stuff, and you know. Those of you who know Neil, uh, as I do, will know his love. And, I mean, that's not even a kind of adequate word, really. Your kind of absolutely formative immersion and kind of structuring element of music that it plays in your life, which is so far different from me. It's one of the things I think that is very different between between us, whereas we, you know, I think there's a lot more kind of in common in terms of our film tastes. Um, but music is an interesting one we always kind of clash not well i don't know it's clash we don't clash do we but i I mean just just sort of philosophies of what music means to us is very is very different i think so yeah um just listening to you on the your recent um, interview on new oral cultures um with daniel bacchieri about his kind of street music project and hearing you sort of again talk about music and and the role that sort of music plays in in your life it is it is very different i think to the to the to the role it plays in my life um and in that episode, he sort of says he's fifty percent music, fifty percent cinema, um, and I'm probably pretty close as well. And I think that a lot of my, a lot of my formative film watching led to formative music listening. You know, particularly like you know Mean Streets and Scorsese, and um, but also kind of seeing music documentaries that got me into bands. You know, West Way to the World is the is the Don Letts film about the Clash. That was the first time I really kind of was aware of them, and that film really kind of. Yeah, got me got me excited to 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 get into into the Clash, and that's you know sort of a long-standing uh, love affair with that band. So there is a real kind of crossover between the two, um, and yeah, it's still it's still something you know music is still something I get really really excited about. I get really excited about new music as much as I get excited about new movies, and and still buying records um, as you can see, um, and kind of trying to again trying to find that excitement. Um, to hear something that kind of just yeah sort of shifts your axis in the same way as watching something and it was weird because I think writing about music documentaries sort of hit me quite by surprise I was when I was right I write for the big picture website and they used to have a magazine and I've written for uh, one issue and um, on 
what's I write? I wrote Ikiru, um, the Kurosawa movie, which is the main one I remember writing about. And um, then the next issue was about music, and there was just like one of the features on music documentaries. And I said, oh, I'll take that kind of instinctively. And when I started writing about it, I was like, wow, this is this just makes so much sense because <laughs> it is it's movies and music and the combination. Of why did I not? Why have I not been writing about this before? And since then. Yeah, it's really what I focus on when I'm kind of writing criticism, uh, trying to 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 sort of spend time in that space. Definitely writing about music documentaries and concert films, and what they're called is one of the big things about the book as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say there's we're, we're making a distinction there, but maybe there's a yeah that that's not a simple distinction, is it? Not at all. No, I mean you know part of the thesis of the book is arguing whether music documentaries are documentaries at all, you know, and whether they are simply just performance films given the nature of the subject, you know, yeah. whether you're just, you're always watching people performing a version of themselves um, to different degrees. Um, and it's the fissures in that that are really interesting. You know, those moments where the performance cannot be maintained for whatever reason, and you sort of get a glimpse at, you know, the truth or your authenticity or reality, whatever you're, however you want to kind of classify it, where you realise actually what I've been watching before is, is is a persona um and uh and also yeah kind of concert films are both documentaries but also something else um which i think is really interesting and uh yeah part of me wonder whether they should be a book on their own but there's certainly going to be a chapter uh sort of particularly looking at, at what they're doing which is connected but but very different sure and i mean when you're when you're thinking about what doc documentary music documentaries are trying to do there is this separation then between almost a, that 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 documentary approach that's trying to reveal as you say a kind of truth about you know who the band is or maybe put it into some kind of historical context but then you've got the concept film which is more trying to evocate something about the 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 energy or the performance the performative uh, identity of a band or an artist in that sense so just wondering what do you, what do you think that the the cinematic possibilities you know the kind of mechanics of what cinema can do bring to a concert film that makes it more than just you know that 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 documentation of the of the concert that that happened i mean that, that hopefully that will lead us into stop making sense but then if you think of the great concert films or you think of concert films more more recently that we've seen maybe amazing grace is probably the big one that we've sort of talked about recently you know we've tried to grapple with the idea of what it is that cinema adds or brings out or kind of constructs for us that adds something to a the artist and b the the artist performing yeah it's it's really interesting, I think, because so much of how music documentaries have been talked about historically is as representations of a band, you know, like so that they're always generally through the lens of what do we learn about Bob Dylan or what do we learn about the Rolling Stones through this work? Um, and what what I'm really interested in is where filmmakers and this this you know this is the case with a lot of those Beatles and Stones films where the filmmakers are interested in using a variety of techniques and you know kind of thinking cinematically about how to portray 
something which both tries to capture the essence of an artist but also is is not merely trying to say you know this is exactly who this person is or these these are the fact you know that these are the facts and figures that's um there's a great guy lodge said this recently you know sort of these um facts and footage movies you know and i think that i'd really like to try and unlock over the course of writing the book um what what happens when filmmakers engage with music cinematically in this way um and it's great because so many of the examples are are kind of from filmmakers um so uh, jonathan demney obviously was stopped making sense scorsese with the last waltz um and uh and sort of many many more which we'll probably talk a bit more about in this one but i think that there is you know it's kind of too general or too binary to say that there's a the, you know that there's 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 sort of just two ways of doing it but one seems one way that it, it seems that i respond to is when the filmmakers are trying to capture in the film form you know something that make something that makes that artist stand out musically which is kind of a clumsy way of saying it but i think you can always tell when you're watching a film where the filmmaker respects and understands the place that the artist has in the music world and wants to do something cinematically which kind of celebrates and echoes that rather than just saying like you know here is one scene here is okay so a good example would be or two good examples would be the Miles Davis and John Coltrane film so Chasing Train and Miles Davis Birth of the Call now you couldn't get two more innovative and kind of groundbreaking musical icons of the 20th century um you know fascinating biographies and just really significant musical accomplishments and the films are so dull you know like they're so dull because they're just they 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 want to cram in as much biography as possible they want to kind of tell the whole story so you get a little bit of this a little bit of this a little bit of this and it nothing breathes there's no there's no sense you know they sort of they tell you these people were significant but you don't feel it you don't feel it in the filmmaking you don't feel that you know that filmmaker kind of responding emotionally to the the subject and trying to sort of tease out aesthetically or stylistically what that significance might be in a, as a kind of cinematic representation um so you end up knowing the surface of um these artists and seeing a lot of great pictures and some interesting archive footage but there's no choices the filmmakers are not making choices um and i think it's in the it's in the choices that the the impact really really lies um and you know so many of those films particularly the those two jazz films you know you have this incredible archive footage which is just you know the footage of a concert or the footage of a gig footage in a studio and it just blows up it blows out the water at all the other filmmaking in the film because it's it's just it's purely capturing the artists at doing what they do which is being on film playing music and filmmakers who are aware of the power of the artist and the power of the footage that exists and kind of are making a film that kind of builds around that I often find much more successful and interesting and much more worthy as cinematic objects than 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 others and um and how they choose to tell the story as well is really important because so much of these and we talked about this on the Bogdanovich episode where his choices about Buster Keaton made you leave the film kind of remembering what made Buster Keaton special whereas if it had told that story chronologically biographically it would have just been a real downer because so many of these stories end badly particularly when it's documentaries you know tragic death or you know obscurity or whatever it is so those kind of choices i think are really really important i'm just trying to sort of uh, 
yeah, think about how that kind of applies, I think, maybe to different artists as well and what their position in relationship to the concept films that they've done or had done about them, how that then enters back into where their standing is in 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 popular culture or music culture. So just thinking, you know, obviously, are there artists that are kind of defined by their concept films that that takes a more much more prevalent position like i don't know i mean it's like say somebody like like uh bob dylan for example has had concert films made about him but i don't think he's defined by them in a way but then something i mean again maybe correct me if i'm wrong but like the the band concert film kind of defines the band in many ways do you know what i mean it's which is interesting um and then again with, with people like like bowie and maybe someone like Jimi Hendrix as well. I would say that they are defined very much by concert footage of them rather than a concert film in a singular sense. Do you see what I mean? So it's like with Jimi Hendrix, it's like you just see him in concert all the time. That's the great footage. I mean, I don't know there's the Monterey footage and then the Woodstock concert film, but it's kind of like the relationship to Jimi Hendrix is literally him being filmed playing in concert fo footage. You're right, and so many of the kind of the famous concert films are of festivals, you know. So Monterey Pop is 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 you know, and and Woodstock being the big ones, also What Stacks, yeah, as well, um, you know, and they're they're very very different to a, a film which is about one artist. Um, so, like you say, that footage of Hendrix is pulled out, you know, much more than the Richie Havens footage, which is great as well from Woodstock, you know, yeah. but because of because of what again what happened to Hendrix and what that moment represented i think and i think that it's it is it's hard but you know so many of those films have become sort of the canonical films and i think a, a lot of that has to do with the fact of that they they captured on film you know significant cultural moments of the 20th century when music was much more significant in the culture and aligned with kind of what the culture was than it than it is now you know we talked a, a, about this a lot in terms of the role that film plays in culture now and you know that, that you know you look at you look at the 60s and the music of the 60s bob dylan mm. the stones the beatles Jimi hendrix um they were they were way bigger than music you know they were kind of cultural forces that that kind of because of the way music and was was consumed then were, were just kind of ever present um much more than they could be now you know the idea of could you have a Beatles now is obviously is talked about a lot. So those you couldn't see them. Yeah, you'd have to go to the cinema to see Bob Dylan on film. You know, there might be a newsreel of Bob Dylan talk, but to go and see if you weren't at a show, that was it. You know, so you go and see Don't Look Back, or you go to see the Woodstock film, and you know Woodstock made a ton of money. You know, that was a really mm. because everyone had heard about this thing that happened in New York, and there was this film. So there really is a different. Um, there's a different context to those to those works. Um, I think as well that the reason that the last waltz is is maybe synonymous with the band, which is different for someone like Bob Dylan, is that it captures their last. It's the last waltz, you know. It, it's it's it, again a lot of it has to do with timing. Um, you know that don't look back. Obviously captures Dylan. Just the timing of it is kind of mad. Hard days night the same. You know, the 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 fortuitousness of kind of having films of artists at, at those moments um is is kind of mad and you can't quite believe it exists because even in the 60s there's a uh, you know those are not easy films to make you know you've got much more lightweight equipment particularly 
you know, sort of Penny Baker and Richard Lester making use of kind of small film cameras, but the kind of the wherewithal to know that these are significant moments, I think, is, is really, really interesting. Um, and artists being OK with having all that stuff filmed and kind of and playing along in a kind of in a different way than they would now is makes those films so, so important. Um, and they have stood the test time for those reasons in a way that music's changed so much that it's hard to it's hard to do that now. Yeah. This is my interesting question about leading into Stop Making Sense and Stop yeah. Making Sense's position as, you know, the greatest concert film for some or, you know, in that conversation, let's say. And again, you know, we can all we can dismiss the idea of what's the greatest and lists and all that, as we always do. But, you know, that it, it, it's it's universally yeah. acclaimed in many ways, isn't it? And still and still is now. And I think there's two things to that, watching it again. And, and it, what was funny was your tweet, it was, it, as you've watched this 12,000 plus times. This is probably my second only watch when I watched it for this. And the two things that struck me was that it is so different to concert films, you know, that are more contemporary, let's say. You know, the idea of the the artist and the the, the, the minimalist energy of the band in performance in in context that where the the director is not trying to lay on top kind of directorial flair and flamboyance just for the sake of it or not trying to capture the 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 spectacle of the entire event i.e. the auditorium the crowd all of those kinds of things sorry there's a <laughs> police car just going past there adding uh, adding sound effects to the podcast um so yeah the the all of that is not there let, let, in the ways that you would see, let's say, if you, you know, probably back to the 80s when you had the, the Madonna concert film and Michael Jackson was around. That idea of spectacle, a spectacle concert was sort of coming into being. And now, obviously, I mean, we'll talk about this later on, the idea that, you know, all concerts are viewable at all times on YouTube. So it's everybody's trying to up the ante. And, you can, and then you can talk about sort of, you know, Pink Floyd and these huge artistic, um, con you know, performance art type concert films. Mm. But this is very minimalist in comparison. So whether you think it's great, it has to be down to other things. And is it simply that Talking Heads as a band and David Byrne as an artist and presence is doing something that's transcendent and you either feel that transcendence or you don't? Or is Demi doing something in the filming and in the audio recording, because obviously that's a big element of it, that is allowing Burn and Talking Heads to 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 reveal themselves in this transcendent way that doesn't have all the bells and whistles on. <laughs> yes, is the answer. I think that and I think it's a combination. I think that <laughs> I think the reason that it's so beloved is it's so pure. Um well two two reasons. One is that it's pure, you know, that, that even things like Last Waltz, uh, Gimme Shelter there's a lot of backstage, there's a lot of, you know, other stuff. There's a lot of, you know, kind of talking heads for one of, you know, to use the pun. Um, but there's a context around the gig um, that is incorporated. So it's, it's, it's sort of saying here is, here is the, the band's last shows, but also here's the band talking about the last shows. And here's the Stones Altamont, but here's the Stones talking about Altamont before press conferences and, you know, particularly interesting in that film is then watching the edit of the footage, which captures obviously the death of of, of, a, of an audience member. Um, 
but there's none of that in 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 stop making sense and there isn't really much consideration for the audience you know if they're glimpsed they're glimpsed in the distance particularly in the first or for the first hour or so whenever the the, the camera sort of catches them the the film is interested in the band um and the band um, particularly burn and his kind of conception of the stage show is interested in you know what might be terms of undesign you know it's 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 not spectacular and it's almost mm. the band and the film are challenging themselves to say can we get you there you know can in you know if you're looking at the stage show can can i come out and do an acoustic song of my probably the biggest hit <laughs> with a you know with a, a portable stereo and then while we're can we see everyone setting up can we see no can we see the stage bear can we see stage hands rolling equipment on that then just sort of sits there for a song and then eventually some lights come on can we put it all together to the point where sort of song five it feels like the show starts can we challenge you to to to, to go along with it and can we still get to the point where you're you're dancing in the aisles now obviously that those people are fans but the film doesn't take that for granted it doesn't say well look at these people having a really good time all the way through so you must be having a good time it really relies on the the band and the music to to, to sort of to try and get to a point like you say where it can be transcendent for anybody watching it or where anybody watching it can really appreciate the craft that's gone into it and what you know what i think demi does really is you know he is he's a filmmaker who is a very emotionally responsive filmmaker and he he obviously respects burn and respects talking heads but you know wants to kind of get in there and wants to wants to try and capture what is important to him and what's emotional to him so that the, the camera work is really fascinating there's a lot of close-ups you know the, the cameras are really up and up in there amongst the performers um you know there's some really nice mm. playful moments where the comfort that the performers have with with the with the the um the camera uh, sort of the camera crew is it just feels really intimate it feels sometimes it feels like concert films are filmed against the wishes of the artists you know like they're doing it because they know they have to because mm. it's a dvd that will make money you know whereas burn is you know clearly interested in working with a filmmaker to to tell the story of this performance which builds from you know this lovely tracking shot of his of his feet and what i love about that that first is you see all of the the markers you see all the tape on the floor you can sort of see the show how it's going to be feet stroll past yeah. i've got a song for you here comes the you know um and then the way that the filmmaking works kind of builds and builds and builds in terms of the types of shot the speed of the editing um what you see um and you realize well i sort of realize sort of halfway through oh actually everything about this has been really really carefully planned to 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 make me feel a certain way um the other thing is i just before i finish that is that it works because of talking heads because they were a band that had that that knowingness and that kind of intelligence baked into the music so they were interested in but also aware of what they were doing and how what they were doing was was conceived you know sort of very famously early you know early kind of pop adopters white pop adopters of you know different ethnic forms particularly sort of african music um and aware a, a genuine interest in doing that but also an awareness of what it looked like to do that um and that kind of stage show was built out of you know sort of quite a few years of working in 
in that way. Um, and I think it's it's such a everybody's having such a good time on the stage. It's hard to not to not just kind of revel in the pleasure of it. Um, you know, that, and when you know that Talking Heads was a, a four piece band, but there's sort of 10 people on stage, it's, it's, in, it's interesting to see that they don't feel like session musicians which is really rare as well in concert films that you've got a second keyboard player who you never look at him because they're not in the band. Whereas Demi's, and there's lovely, there's lovely shots where he's got the, or the camera person is on Demi and then sort of the camera sort of pulls away really, you know, curiously because, you know, one of the session musicians on the keyboards is doing something interesting. So it's like the camera person is, oh, this is, this looks interesting. I'll go over here. You know, um, there's a playfulness to it, which is, it doesn't feel rigid. It feels like they're they're responding to what's going on on stage in a really natural way. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Just going back to what you said about the sort of joyfulness of it, and that's that's kind of remarked upon by Pauline Kael in her pretty famous review now of the of the film, um, which I'll link to on the on the show notes. <laughs> I had to laugh that it was kind of for joyfulness. It was compared to to splash. And all of me, which yeah. is kind of an interesting kind of uh, you know comparison piece, I think. Um, but yeah, just on on sort of Burn and Talking Heads and where they were as a band at this point, and how it how their their identity and their music and their aesthetics, it it almost seems to me as this is. I mean, the, sorry, the question I'm getting at is, is this peak Talking Heads? Or actually, is this just a sort of precursor to Talking Heads being part of the MTV explosion? Because they're working in this kind of modernist I- irony, which I think a lot of the new wave bands obviously kind of aligned with when MTV came out, with especially the more experimental visual you know, type of artists. And even artists that were mainstream were trying to be visually experimental, I think, when MTV first came out. So it's... It's interesting whether this is actually kind of almost a a prototype, really, of um, performance art that's in a in a specific concert film st- situation. Actually, when you look at Talking Heads, is probably pre what they r- really are, which is a, a kind of no, no, absolutely no. I think I think you've hit on something there. I think that there's lots of interesting things about that. One is that yeah, that the, the um, the drummer Chris France and, and David Byrne met at art school. You know, um, they were art. They're, they're, I mean, Talking Heads are the archetypal, you know, art school band. You know, like, you know, a lot of punk bands came out of art school. Um, you know, sort of the Clash and the Sex Pistols and things like that. But, but they they sort of didn't they didn't bring that kind of art school sensibility to the music necessarily. So that you know, the the look was very much, you know, an art school kind of conceptual look, but. Talking Hens were an art rock band who were interested in aesthetics, particularly Burn, you know, like, you know, that kind of that performance of, you know, there is a performance art element to his his persona on stage. Um, there's a knowingness to the to the music. There's an interest in kind of how things look. One of the amazing things about Stop Making Sense is that it looks like no one, you know, it's very stripped back, but everything's very deliberate. What they're wearing is very deliberate. You know the the dance moves are very deliberate. Um, there's there's a lot going on, um, and this is carried through with American Utopia and and Burns' idea that anybody can can and should move their bodies and trying to work out what that will be. And exactly, yeah, his his his, his yeah, amazing kind of he's got an amazing physicality in the film, which is you know kind of watching a, a kind of silent comedian at times. Um, but so 
what's interesting about what you're saying is that they were a band that should have that, that kind of welcomed i think mtv in many ways is a great there's a great interview from the time a video interview which is on the blu-ray of burn interviewing burn you know kind of um double exposure uh, interview where he interviews himself about stop making sense um which is really fun we only have a few minutes so try to be brief okay i would do absolutely anything you say right why did you call the movie stop making sense because it's good advice because music and performing does not make sense amazing it is my job how did you ever think of that big suit why a big suit i like symmetry and geometric shapes i wanted my head to appear smaller and the easiest way to do that was to make my body bigger <laughs> because music is very physical Ooh. and often the body understands it before the head what are you going to do next a project with songs based on true stories from tabloid newspapers it's like 60 minutes on acid i bet what made you think of having the musicians come out one at a time well if the curtain opened and everything was there there would be nowhere to go it tells the story of the band and it gets more dramatic and physical as it builds up it's like 60 minutes on acid what made you pick jonathan demi i decided that if this show were to be captured i should be by an experienced film director whose work i loved well what did jonathan do he knew what not to do is what he did do he also saw things as an outsider do you like his outfits how about his haircuts i'll tell you later when are you going to tour again when there is something new to say to an audience then we'll tour again besides new songs when the only way to say that thing is to a live performance making that's what we'll be doing then it's what we have to do be is to be touring do you understand what i'm trying to say um but they were very very much aware of um the importance of the visual you know and they sort of carried that from their their early stage days all the way through their performances and their performances were built as yeah as spectacles you know as entertaining visual um experiences but 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 really really clearly and cleverly designed rather than thinking you know there's twenty thousand people here we have to blow everything up and we have to make it big you know um that the a real kind of confidence and also a kind of daringness to say it's going to be small it's going to be a foot movement here and a foot movement there but it's going to build into this into this visual experience the problem is that at the time of stop making sense the band is not getting on you know they would never really benefit from the mtv explosion because they they were yeah it, it was a tough time you know and that the, they had tough times in the studios for for years because of burns relationship with brian eno um and what eno brought to the production process um it was interesting watching it this time having sort of read chris fancy's interview um, or an interview with him recently and because he had his book out and um just uh realizing that you know they just weren't getting on you know and he wears a blue t-shirt i think everyone else is everywhere else is in gray but france who's is, is kind of not not playing along um it's got a different color t-shirt to the the monochrome aesthetic and with that we have a special guest that's great timing gweno can you hear us there we go sorry lovely to see you you too how are you doing all right everyone yeah that was perfect timing we were just coming to the end of our first bit on stop making sense and then we're going to move into american utopia in 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 a minute but thanks so much for coming on we really appreciate it thank you thanks for having me 
And um, yeah, and also obviously thanks for doing the the theme tune. Absolutely wonderful. We we love it and had so much so much kind of conversation on and uh, feedback on it. How how are you feeling now? A little bit after you know it's been released and everything. Great. You know, it's just so nice to get to do something different. And I love. I was thinking about this because I enjoyed it so much because I love. A really do enjoy it you know someone says can you do me this and then not too many restrictions but it needs to be something particular it's 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 brilliant and you know it was in the last lockdown as well so it's a real help um you get you get asked to do specific things because it actually helps motivate you a little bit it's really difficult otherwise so yeah so thank you as well I just can't remember what the brief was. What did I say? Like, just, I think I said it has to be a couple of minutes. I think I remember saying that. Yeah, that was it. And then I was about your conversation, you know, the, how the sort of style, um, the conversational style of your podcast as well. And, and then just thinking about theme tunes in general and obviously the Radio Symphonic Workshop um, and, th- and thinking about watching television in the 90s. Um, it, it was just that. And then, um, Chris, my husband's a big fan of uh, football, James Richardson's football f- podcast. So I sort of hear these kind of podcast. I mean, I'm not, I don't actually listen to podcasts myself, but um, I hear these sort of conversational podcasts and theme tunes. And so I was thinking about something quite bright and uplifting and something I could imagine on television. We would love to be on television. So obviously it's... Yeah, but I was actually quite being quite ambitious for oh. you. I was like, right, okay, well, well, we've got to think about this long term. So when these guys get on TV, then the theme tune has to be amazing. Exactly. And I can see the graphics for it as well. That kind of 80s. Yeah, exactly. 80s, 8-bit yeah. kind of yeah, we were just, graphics. We were just talking about... Um... Uh, talking Heads aesthetic, and I think our aesthetic is pretty obvious. <laughs> the, the, the difference of it. Yeah. Um, so how how I mean again, I don't want to drive off a kind of um, cliff of moroseness, but you know, how have you been no. doing in uh, <laughs> in lockdown? How's work for for you as a, an artist and uh, you know a musician and generally dealing with all of this? Mostly gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, so feel free to vent and go for it. On oh that if God. You want to. I sh- yeah. I won't go into it too much because everyone's talking about it, aren't they? Um, yeah. It's really hard, isn't it? Bre- I mean, Brexit's just the disaster, really. Um, it's just one thing after the other, not being able to go to Europe. Um, and obviously, this Spotify thing's really interesting and hopeful. And I'm, you know, it's just so brilliant, all the musicians and organizations that are campaigning for that to get a fairer deal for artists. It's really exposing a lot of um, the. Uh, failings of a lot of different industries I think and praying that it's an opportunity to actually highlight all of this because I think you know as consumers of music people are not as aware of that as of how things work and I think it's been great in a sense to pull music lovers into the conversations about fairness for artists and and also you know the value of it as well because I think we, we take our art all art forms for for granted, I think, and music in particular, um, particularly popular music. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about highlighting the importance of it and the value of it. And, mm. you know, why else have we got if we haven't got yeah. art anyway? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know if Neil probably agrees with this, but the uh, it's so interesting sort of teaching students and, you know, they're absolutely ingrained into this culture of free stuff. 
and yet they're training to be in an industry. You know, they want to work in an industry. Don't you realize that all this free stuff that you have is not going to pay you in this job that you want to go to? So it's the irony of that. I think you know sometimes it twigs, but sometimes lost. I think. Well, it's. I think it's also about the access point as well, isn't it? Because you've got to think about there was this sort of. Um, idealistic view utopian view of the internet initially i think of oh you know everyone has access to everything and that in itself you know having you know art free at the point of access is a really good idea actually but it needs to be funded to be made within a capitalist society that values Mm. money you know yeah yeah absolutely so yeah so that's how my (laughs) lockdown's going um yeah but I think within that is contained, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but there is that this year has been has been a really tense one for those those kind of things that the harsh economic realities of making stuff um, coupled with the fact that we would as a society not have got through the last 12 months were it not for the results of it, you know, and I think that those conversations are are vital and hope my my hope is that the pandemic has has made those conversations more audible to the people who can sort of make those change. Um, but my pessimism is obviously that their, their track record on dealing with anything is is pretty shit. So um, yeah, that it's it, it is necessary that people um, can live for you know particularly when when we enjoy the fruits of of that artistic labour. We we don't have a great attitude towards funding. I, I know it's slightly different in film because it needs so much funding. So funding isn't regarded as something negative or not um or taking away from a sort of market value of something which obviously shouldn't be its value um its commercial value um but i think within music it's about for example you know this pandemic um arts organizations have been funded in venues which is fantastic because we'll need them when we come back but a lot of freelance Musicians and artists have fallen through the cracks and, you know, you're not going to have anything to engage with in these places if these people aren't looked after. So it's really about, you know, where the investment happens and that's across the board. And I think just, you know, music in particular is such a fragile industry because it lacks the structure because it's all about if a song goes, it flies, everything changes, you know, but there's... You know the value is just so fragile of a piece of music i think you know because mm. it doesn't have the funding it, it can be it can come out of nothing probably more so than other art forms bar poetry mm. i don't know you yeah. know no it's true I, i've been watching obviously i'm watching a lot of music films yeah. for the book um and one of the recurring uh sort of re- realizations or re-realizations is is that there's a rarefied air at the top where there's like 10 people who are fine, <laughs> yeah. but then everybody else, you know, be that jazz, you know, uh, hip hop, um, punk, all these sort of films, like they're asked how you're getting on. It's like it's a, it's always been a hand to mouth existence, you know. That it's there's this idea that oh you're a musician or you even you you know you're you're fine you're kind of and it's like no the reality is is a grind it's a real grind and um, you know uh, never you know that was when there was 
outlets and places to play um and now there's not it's it's really dire but i guess we just have to be hopeful um and uh we know, have to we, else <laughs> are we gonna do <laughs> you know it's yeah. like you you've got to be um i'm trying to think of things that i'm you know i'm again i think the things i'm hopeful about is the campaigning is is the raising mm. awareness of how we consume our arts um mm. what what that means to the artist and again that's across the board isn't it you know film creators you know it's exactly the same story um so i think that raising awareness share you know uh, taking advantage of the fact that we're communicating and sharing information constantly is hopefully you know an opportunity for enlightenment and change and pressure put on you know the society and actually you know just a change would be mm. great you know if we could just get rid of the tory government we'd be fine yeah I was, I, it was funny there because I, I i thought you were for a minute you were going to say go covid but then it's it's so interesting <laughs> no. to me that the i don't know how you feel about this but i can in some ways i can kind of accept the fact that, that there's a global pandemic because what what can you do about that and then even the, the the possibilities say, I mean, the way it's decimated live, ve- you know, gigging basically in live venues, because obviously you can't all. Be- so there's going to have to be some way of figuring out how that comes back. But all of that, you can kind of wrap your head around and say, yeah, we need to do things. We're going to have to have a new model of of the way that we use use live venues and all this kind of stuff. But what you can't get your head around is the kind of vindictiveness and also sort of the 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 almost kind of rejection of the, the very the very idea of culture that the Tory government implicitly makes when it makes decisions about, say, insurance and licenses for going and visas for going to Europe. I mean, it's just beyond comprehension to me in that, you know? It's just complete incompetence on just on every single level, isn't it? And it's, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the idea, you know, what the way forward is really, because obviously we are all stuck home and, you know overturning overthrowing a government yeah. is not <laughs> as easy to do when you're sat on your no, laptop <laughs> but you know watch yeah. out when covid is over yeah. i'd say just on um you know we're talking a lot today about live performance and then the filming of live performance and as somebody who's a you know a live performer musician um i, I just wondered like say for example what what it's like and what kind of considerations as a as an artist and what worries and anxieties you go through say for example when you if you turn up to a tv studio and and what your performance and what your identity and sense of self is going to come across like yeah totally you know it's that the biggest anxiety you'll ever get as an artist is that someone wants to come in and record what you do live it's just right. a nightmare. It's just your worst nightmare <laughs> because you lose control over what happens. Um, we tend to always ask for a copy of the <laughs> recording yeah. before allowing for it to be broadcast anywhere. Um, and it's really and live mixing is really difficult. Um, um, I'm trying to think of an you know. You, I think it depends as well. I think it depends on the circumstances. Um, for example. We were lucky enough to do um, later with Jules Holland. And now that was a completely different experience from anything we've had before in terms of, um, obviously because they're so, they're such a well-oiled machine, it's just incredible in terms of what the way that they can, they can create a situation where all of the artists feel really comfortable 
um because there's, there's nothing worse than i think than doing a live performance for something that's going to be recorded um and knowing that you're out of control and you're actually passing that control on to people that you need to really trust implicitly mm. um i think that that was definitely an experience that was just incredible for us and practically as well as being obviously a complete honor to be in a program like that was um was just a, an absolute pleasure um so i think it's it's about working so it can really work well because it's this that thing as well of um so many people have their bad gigs and they turn out to be amazing when they were you know it's like their heads where you know always bad that 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 gig that gig was for them in terms of sound and then everyone everyone it's just a life-changing gig for so many people sure. that were there so it's quite interesting isn't it because you don't you have no control over that but there is nothing nothing worse than watching yourself back and it just being horrific and there's nothing you can do about it so it's hor it's a horrible thing so i admire anyone particularly you know because i was thinking about this when you were saying what the what the podcast was about and thinking of thinking about you know live gigs i have to say in the past year i haven't watched um any concert films because i think it would just make me cry <laughs> but one i had watched and it was something that you know we were discussing actually after watching it was the um there was a studio ghibli 25 years concert because we've been watching a lot of the ghibli st stuff with my five-year-old and it's i mean that, i think that's for me has been the most positive experience out of this whole lockdown actually um with totoro um and it and it, and it's it's amazing when you watch a classical music concert because obviously it was just a whole big concert um with singers and uh, and an orchestra and the sound quality it's it's incredible it's made, made me think a lot about you know the acoustics of the room playing to a room um what that means because often the, the music doesn't suit the room because it's about the acoustics mm. of the room as well, um, which is something that become is becoming less and less necessary because everyone's creating electronic music that's just laptop based. But I, I miss that, you know, I think having a sense of a space, I think I, I, I'm definitely showing my age that I, I actually, I, I miss that. I, 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 yeah, it's, yeah, because I know Burns did a, a TED talk. I don't know if you watched it about this sense of space. You must mm. have watched it. Um, and I, I found that really interesting because I think it has so much to do with why I'm disconnected often from contemporary electronic progressive music because it doesn't have a sense mm. of space. It's just a complete digital world, which I, I don't particularly like. I'm, I, I'm, you know, it's like I'm here, I'm doing it. There's things to do. I dislike mm. it completely. I don't like the aesthetic. I don't like it, what the individualism that it creates. I, I just, I just don't like it. You know, this big, te big tech thing. I disagree with it on an aesthetic level. I was gonna say the, um, I think yeah, the the fact that Netflix put all those Ghibli films up just before, just at the end of twenty nineteen, I think was probably one of the best things that could happen to to cinephiles in the last in the last year. I think there's so much online about just the joy of of that stuff has been nice. Ah. Oh. It's the sophistication of it, you know. It was that was it for me because um, Nico watches a lot of television. <laughs> he has done in the past year. It's insane, and I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of Disney films on, and it's all about this sort of journey of self discovery um, and yeah. self improvement, and it's just horrific, you know. I disagree with it entirely, and I think that Totoro in particular, it's just the fact that it's. That the it doesn't conclude. It's just it's just a snapshot 
of a moment in childhood you know things you don't know if mum gets better yeah. you know it's that's not important because the important thing is how you you cope with that and i just think there's just the sophistic the sophistication in the storytelling and and i think that we're often and you know it does worry me with things like netflix because i think things are dumbed down from children to adults you know it's like it's things like what annoys me is in these sort of historical dramas that have no historical facts in them it's just ah i think we're that stupid that we want to sit it's like is this what we've become it's like i want to learn something please you know i want to be enlightened and obviously they're doing it to pacify everyone so that nobody does anything but it's just when we do have that ray of sunshine like totoro yeah. you're like Oh, okay. I'm not, you know, there is value. There is art that, that changes things, mm. you know. No, there's, de there's definitely stuff out, out there. It's just you have to wade mm. through oceans of uh, banality to get to it, I think. And that's always the, yeah. the, the hard part. Um, yeah. Gwena, thanks so much for taking the time out to, to, come, to come on. It was uh, absolutely wonderful. Well, uh, thanks for having me on to rant. <laughs> I mean, you know, I appreciate the event. Well, I think, I mean, we've been talking about this on the podcast, haven't we, Neil, in terms of making trying to sort of move a little bit more towards making sure that what we're saying has kind of relevance you know in the broadest sense of that rather than just you know going off on one about a nice film that we saw you know in, from the 1960s or something but I, I, and I think that this these questions about what art and culture is going to look like post-pandemic but also post-Brexit and post the Tories is something that we should all be kind of thinking about talking about Absolutely. advocating well for in the ways that you talk about. Cool. Here, here. Thank you. Lovely to see you both. You too. Bye. Beginning. The stunning debut from writer-director Dea Kolumbagashvili and Georgia's official submission for the 2021 Oscars is coming exclusively to curated streaming service Mubi on January 29th. This unflinching examination of trauma, religious conflict, and intolerance marks the arrival of a major new talent in world cinema. For a limited time, Cinematologist listeners are invited to claim a free month of movie to watch this film and much, much more. An ever-changing collection of lovingly hand-picked cinema, from new directors to award winners, from everywhere on earth. Sign up and start watching at movie.com slash promos slash the cinematologists. For more info on the film, check out Devika Girish's New York Times review linked in the show notes. You know that we love movie here at The Cinematologists, so you know it's an honour to partner with them for this release. So that was good. Yes, lovely to see and hear from uh, from Gwen. And yeah, um, just again, another thank you. I think, you know, we, we've, sort of, we've said thank you a lot. Um, two reasons, I think. Maybe, maybe we, we love it. Um, you know, we feel very honoured to have such a wonderful piece of music open and show, but also because of what we talked about there, you know, like it's, it's, it, it means a lot that someone takes time to, to make something that didn't exist before, um, and sort of, and, and give it to your, to your show. So we, we, we're very, very grateful that, 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 that Gwenol did, mm. did that for us. Um, yeah. And always nice to, always nice to have rants about, um, the importance of art and the value of art. So welcome back anytime. So we are, we're going to go to the, the bonus episode very, very soon and talk a little bit more about American Utopia. But just as a sort of starting point on that to, to help us segue across, I, I just wondered, I mean, 
obviously the the background of this is that it was an album that came out and then it was a theatrical performance and then the, apparently Spike Lee saw that and, and and said that he wanted to make he wanted to make a film out of it do you think that there was an intention then that there was this was going to bookend stop making sense or is this just something that kind of happened accidentally or do you think that like say for example is david byrne trying to not 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 to demarcate his relevance in the 21st century but do you know what i mean it, it it's it's sort of a sense of here is this artist that's still around you know that and, and he's still doing stuff that that is that is interesting as and is actually still quite you know within the within the framework of the way that he's always worked and obviously there's aesthetic kind of connections to stop making sense but he's still doing interesting stuff yeah i saw your i saw your sort of blog about it and sort of that that aspect of it the burnness of it is um uh, yeah. was something that you were you were not you know less interested in and sort of you know thought was a bit sort of awkward and stuff like that and i think that yeah that that's why i think american utopia is kind of different to stop making sense in it because you, i think you do have to be on board with burn you know and I think Stop Making Sense is a Talking Heads film as much as it's conceived by Burns, uh, by Byrne and as a stage show, you know, that it, it's very clear how that how that music was made and who's doing what um, and the kind of the film's respect for all of those people. And that, as I sort of mentioned before, at the time, that's what Byrne is. That's what's causing tension is Byrne is a self-admitted control freak, particularly at that time, wants, you know, wants too much control, wants, you know, wants to take over every aspect of it um so if you followed burn since talking heads nothing in american utopia really stands out as being unusual you know in terms of how he approaches what he's talking about on stage and that kind of thing but it's much more it's much more clear and present i think in american utopia what burns involvement um in in, in everything and also yeah that it's been put together to to do to to I guess the the last difference I'll say there is like you know American Utopia feels like a show that's been put together so Byrne can do certain things, address certain things yeah. about what he feels is American culture, particularly around voting, latterly around um, race um, and you know sort of Black Lives Matter, but certainly voting and and sort of you know his ideas around America, which are not present and stop making sense because it is about essentially um, promoting a record and a <laughs> and the previous records, you know, so that is absent and i think that's what makes it much more pure i think aesthetically we'll probably talk about this on the bonus that he's clearly in the conception of the show aware of stop making sense and that tour and the aesthetic of that tour and the way that show was constructed that he's carrying over into american utopia and spike mm. lee is aware of stop making sense and kind of gets out of its way which i think is really interesting and does it's not spike leeing it you know he's 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 a very smart filmmaker when filming that and uh the things he does are really interesting. Um, obviously interesting when he's being Spike Lee and kind of his ideas around how to represent the Black Lives Matter thing, I think is really interesting. But it's the other stuff where he's like, you know, let let the music do the talking, let the performance do the talking and, and, and trying to just make it feel a certain way, I think is really, really clever. Um, so, yeah. Great. So um, that will do it for the main show. I ju we just wanted to trail that we have another... Our next episode is going to be taped by, by you, Neil. It's coming up. Do you want to give that a quick shout out before we, we move into the bonus? Yeah, so the next um, the next episode is uh, is an interview with Simon Stevenson, who's a novelist and 
a screenwriter and he has just released his first novel uh, called Set My Heart to Five, uh, which is a kind of sci-fi novel and talking to him because he's been working as a screenwriter in LA for a while. He's originally from the UK. And this this novel has been optioned by and will be made by Edgar Wright. And Stevenson's adapting the, the screenplay himself. So uh, I'm sort of reading it at the moment. It's a fascinating book. And that, I think that's going to be, I'm taping that interview tomorrow. So the paperback comes out in a couple of weeks. So that will be the next one. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one, Dario, because it's, there's a lot of interesting sci-fi stuff in the book, particularly around sci-fi cinema and, 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 and lots of kind of, he's a very, he's a cinephile. So there's a lots of, lots of film elements in the book. So I think we're going to be, we're going to have a really nice conversation about that as well. That's great. I've nearly finished Nusgaard, so I could do with a change of pace. This is very different, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so yeah, come and join us on the uh, Patreon for the bonus episode. We will continue to talk about American Utopia. But until next time on the main show, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.